so now we're going to find out why it's important to find the marginal productivity of, uh, in relation to social circulating capital and how we form the discount rate. So over to Professor. Thank you. Uh, I go back to the last idea which we mentioned just in the morning. We talked about arbitrage. The marginal shopkeeper is the arbitrageur in a rather special type of arbitrage. It may be surprising to many who haven't studied this uh, particular uh, economic problem, which is supplying the consumer with the consumer goods in the highest demand. These are parts of the social circuit in capital are those, precisely those consumer goods, which are most urgently demanded by the consumer, consumer goods, goods in the highest demand. So there is a market for those. And then there is the bill market. So we are going to see now how the marginal shopkeeper does this particular arbitrage. Recall the definition of the marginal shopkeeper. He is the first among the shopkeepers who is going to adjust his inventory when he notices any change in consumer demand. If it's a change in the positive sense, he detects a greater demand on the part of the consumer then he's going to expand his inventory on the shelves. And if he detects a contraction in the demand, then he's going to eliminate uh, the marginal item from his shelf. Maybe several marginal items. So there will be a new marginal item which represents a higher productivity. So the variation between the propensity to consume on the one hand and the marginal productivity of social circuit in capital is inverse. Lower demand means higher productivity. That's, I repeat that because this is where most uh, uh, students either don't follow or if they follow they forget it and then they don't remember this relationship but if the, cons if the propensity to consume falls off then some items, the marginal items are eliminated from the shelf and another item takes over and that item has a higher productivity so that's why the relationship is inverse. Of course, the opposite case, if the, if the propensity to consume is increasing. So the marginal shopkeeper is the one who is going to make the adjustment first when the consumer uh, <coughs> demand changes, when propensity of 
consume does change. And what he does, he has, he has so much capital to work with. Now, normally, his capital is invested in the consumer goods in the highest demand. That's what he carries on the shelves. However, if consumer demand uh, falls off, contracts, then he's eliminating some of the marginal items. Now, eliminating means that he is not going to reorder them from his supplier. And therefore, he is no longer using his capital to the fullest. So what is he going to do with the spare cash or the extra capital he cannot use in his business because of the lower consumer demand? Well, that's the beauty of the theory that he's going to redeploy his capital in another market. And that's the bill market. The bill market where the real bills of those shopkeepers are being traded who have a higher productivity and they are still active. So their bills are trading, are circulating in that bill market. So the shopkeeper will send his spare cash to the bill market and he's bidding for the bills. Now what happens when the when bids come in to a market? It means that the price is going to rise. Now, as the price of the bill rises, this means that the discount rate falls. So, what happens is that as the <coughs> consumer demand contracts, the marginal shopkeeper is redeploying his capital because he shifts uh, his spare capital, no longer needed in the Keep in keeping that large inventory, and he will uh, buy the bills. And in buying those bills, the discount rate will fall. Now, this is this is I would consider this as a very beautiful uh, piece of theory because it shows the efficiency. Uh, the uh, marginal shopkeeper is not being punished by the competition, he's being helped. Because uh, rather than keeping his cash idle, he will buy the bill of bills of those competitors who are more fortunate and they can generate this uh, return, which he could no longer generate his productivity falls off, but his competitors still in business and he will benefit by it. The marginal shopkeeper benefits by it. 
And then, of course, the, when the case is just the opposite, which means that consumer demand picks up, then the marginal uh, shopkeeper realizes that he can fill the empty shelf space. So he is going to reorder. Well, we have discussed this already, but the point is that he has the cash or the capital, because this bill market is the most liquid market there is, so there's no problem for him to sell the bills, and then he has the ready cash, he orders the supplier to provide him with the goods, which will be the new marginal items on his shelf. And when he is adding uh, these uh, new marginal items uh, to the display of goods on his shelf, he is putting a lower productivity good there, which will become the new marginal item, and that means a fall in the marginal productivity of the, of the uh, uh, social circulating capital. So this is an arbitrage, an arbitrage between the consumer goods market, those, those consumer goods which are in the highest demand, and the bill market which is the uh, market for real bills drawn on those consumer goods. And, uh, and this has a regulating effect on the market. It's always the ideal amount of goods or the ideal amount of cash. And if there's an, any need for adjustment, then just through the arbitrage activities of the marginal shopkeeper, the uh, right balance will be struck. So, the, yeah, and the discount rate, what happens to the discount rate? Well, I just said that the uh, <coughs> marginal shopkeeper is going to liquidate some of his holdings of bills of other shopkeepers, which means selling bills. But selling bills uh, lowers the bill price. And as you lower the bill price, the discount rate will increase. So this interplay uh, uh, exists between the discount rate and the marginal productivity of social circulating capital. So could we uh, sum it up? Uh, if the marginal productivity of social circulating capital falls, discount, discount rate rises. Is that what you said? And vice versa. When the marginal productivity of social social circulating capital Rises, the discount rate falls. Well, I have to double check that because. Okay, so 
Uh, here it is. The uh, you are looking at lecture 16. Uh, the notes for 15 are not yet uh, distributed. Uh, hopefully tomorrow I will have it ready. Lecture 16, the formation of this country. The, this country it is a signaling system. Any change in the, this country will alert shopkeepers, all of them, but especially the marginal shopkeeper, that the coordination between the propensity to consume and the marginal productive social circulating capital has become necessary. And now this uh, uh, sentence which is printed in italics, because this is very important, it summarizes this rather complex uh, process. the uh, arbitrage between the two markets. So I'm reading it. The discount rate is determined by the rate of marginal productivity of social circuiting capital. This is just the rate at which the opportunity cost of carrying the marginal item on the shelf becomes critical to the marginal shopkeeper. He is the first one among the shopkeepers to eliminate the marginal item from the shelf at the next optic in the discount rate. Optic means that the discount rate is rising and it jumps from one lower level to a higher level. When this happens, the marginal shopkeeper will eliminate some items. Conversely, when the downtick occurs in the discount rate, then the marginal shopkeeper will put new items on the shelf, which so far haven't been displayed. So there is a new marginal item. And he does this in view of his opportunity to carry his portfolio of bills drawn on other shopkeepers against faster moving merchandise rather than carrying slow moving items on his shelves. So uh, in a condensed form we describe this arbitrage in these words. I admit that this is something you have to think over again and again before it becomes uh, uh, very meaningful to you. We, are, we have reached the stage where we can discuss some complex market action, but I think this, you will see that this has very important consequences uh, that uh, shows how society takes care of various shifting needs. It's not easy because, you know, there is always uh, an aspect of this that you have to do this most efficiently. Uh, people, human beings and society have uh, a limited amount of goods at their disposal and they have to be 
deployed in the most efficient manner in order to derive maximum benefits. And uh, it's not always easy to understand how this maximum benefit can be found, how the market reaches that uh, particular uh, adjusting coordination that the most of that the limited resources are distributed and deployed in the most economic and most useful fashion. Now the short version of this this is a theorem what I've just read, what is printed in my italics, and there is a short version of this theorem which is that the discount rate is in fact identical with the rate of marginal productivity of social circuit in capital. And why is that? Because uh, every time one of the two, discount rate on the one hand, and the so marginal productivity of social circuit capital changes, there is this arbitrage by the marginal shopkeeper which will make this adjustment. If marginal productivity of social certain capital falls, then he is seeking compensation by reducing stock. This means his capital is no longer fully deployed, his excess cash takes this cash to the bill market, buys the bills, that means bidding up the price, which means falling. So I have to correct myself. <laughs> Just before we went through this and I made the conclusion they move in the opposite direction. This is not correct. They move in the same. So uh, I hope uh, I haven't confused you too badly, but in order to rectify this, let's now look at the other situation when the uh, consumer demand picks up and the, uh, the uh, marginal shopkeeper will be in the position to fill the empty shelf space. How does he do that? He does this by ordering a new marginal item. <coughs> and in order to pay for this, he will liquidate some of his bills in portfolio. And that means selling the bills, which means that the price of the bill goes down, which... Which means that the discount rate goes up. You were right. I confused myself, <laughs> which is much better than if I'm confused. Uh, but you could start in the other direction. You assume that there's a change in the bill market. And if there's a change in the bill market, then it has a consequence. And the, uh, the consequence is that uh, the adjustment will be made by the marginal uh, uh, shopkeeper. So for example, if the discount rate goes up, uh, that is a message for, to the shopkeeper 
that his earnings in the bill market went higher. So it will beat the marginal of the productive, the marginal item uh, on his shelf. So because he's enticed to the higher earning, he will do the liquidation. He will no longer order the one. The saving he will channel into the bill market. So it's a two-way street. Signal could come from the discount, uh, from the discount rate on the bill market, but it could also come immediately from the consumer who doesn't buy or, or wants to buy other things and that he will uh, it will induce him to do the appropriate arbitrage. So this is this is how it works and it's uh, I, I, I'm sorry I'm just uh, uh, very uh, excited about this. It's a very beautiful theory and uh, I'm very glad that I had a little part in developing this. It hasn't caught on, but uh, I hope it will. And the fact that you are here is a proof <laughs> that my uh, voice is not in the wilderness. I'm not crying in the wilderness because there is a little, uh, to me, very uh, meaningful response. And. Uh, uh, and uh, we shall see what the benefit, it's not empty theorizing, uh, there, is, there will be some important consequences. Now what I uh, haven't uh, really discussed in a great deal of detail so far is how the discount rate comes about originally, how, how did it happen that the real bill market created that situation whereby there's a return to capital in the form of a discount rate. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's put the marginal shopkeeper to rest for a little while, while we clarify the process whereby the bill market makes it possible for those who purchase the bills uh, earn a return. And I already called that the return uh, the safest uh, return you can <coughs> earn having paper assets. It's the best earning, I, I think I use this phrase, the bills are the best earning assets which a commercial bank can have. They are <coughs> liquid, they are safe, and they have all the other features which, which uh, you find desirable if you want to be both liquid and safe in, in uh, putting your reserves in. And that's exactly what the uh, commercial banker is looking for. He wants to have an earning asset which is very liquid because he could have to, he might have to meet a demand for gold and if, if this is a higher demand than the normal, then the only way he can meet it is to sell some of his bills in, from portfolio for gold. 
and then use the gold to satisfy that increased gold demand. So it has to be very liquid, and certainly the bill market offers that liquidity. And it has to be very safe. Uh, we have seen that in the bond market there can be crises. Uh, if too many people try to sell bonds, then the bond price could collapse. Uh, without active, it, it, and this is not a fault of the uh, of the uh, issuer of the bond, because uh, it could be the fault of the acceptance house, which uh, insists on collateral for accepting bills, and uh, if all the acceptance houses try to sell bonds at the same time, then the bids disappear and the price of the bond falls. And uh, that's not because of the issuer of the bond, because the bond may be maturing in several years from now. Uh, but this could happen, and therefore uh, bond investment is not a safe one in that sense that the when you want to liquidate your holdings, the market may not be there. there. There are no bids and therefore you take a loss. This is not the case in the bill market. The bill market, there is a steady demand for bills world over and uh, because of that, the bank or whoever is holding the bill will be in the position to uh, to liquidate his bill without any loss or any major loss, let's put it that way. There are transaction costs, but the, the type of loss we are talking about in the bond market or the stock market or real estate market. So, oh, what I'm Visualizing now the situation that there are these traders, and we can think of, we can think of the uh, example from Mises, human. No, that's not human action. That's the theory of money and capital. He describes the nexus between the spinner and the weaver and the cloth merchant. Okay, they are. Uh, trading, they are producing, and the semi-finished good is moving closer and closer to the consumer. It's the cloth merchant who is closest to the consumer, and the bills are drawn on on his good, on on him, because the uh, the cloth is delivered to the cloth merchant and he will then sell it to the ultimate consumer. So uh, this bill is acceptable to the spinner who is spinning the yarn of which the weaver weaves the cloth and uh, at maturity in 91 days or less the, uh, well, he also has, the spinner also has his uh, supplier. Uh, if it's cotton, well, then 
the uh, cotton merchant is also part of the chain and the bill goes through his hands as well. But at maturity, they collect from the club merchant, who is the one who gets the gold coin at the time the final sale is made. And then the, all the demands which have arisen during the journey of the semi-finished good to the consumer, all the demands, the credit at every level, let's suppose there are four levels, will be satisfied out of the single gold coin which is collected by the uh, cloth merchant and then when he pays the bill then the, everybody gets his share. Okay, so this is the uh, uh, situation and now let's uh, take into account the discount rate. We have already mentioned that uh, a bill which is still maturing would circulate but when it changes hands for example when the uh, uh, weaver passes it on to the spinner the face value of the bill is subject to discount and the uh, amount of discount mainly depends on the number of days to maturity In, uh, and it has to be annualized so that you can compare different, uh, <coughs> different rates. And that's also true at the next level and the next level and so on and so forth. But that's only one input in determining the height of the, this country. There is another one which is an outside influence because these bills are, are very liquid. You can, uh, uh, you can arbitrage between them if a, a bill has a higher rate then another one, suppose there is the wool chain and there is a cotton chain. Okay, we are talking about the cotton chain here, but it competes with the wool chain. It is a very similar structure, but if it so happens that the discount rate is higher in the, in the wool chain, then holders of bills will sell the lower paying bill and uh, or, or they don't even go near that because they know they, they can get a better rate in the other market. So in other words this market will be starved of funds input and uh, this will uh, be the favored type of bill until the situation uh, equalizes itself when the discount rate will be the same. So in other words, the, uh, there is a discount rate at large which depends not just on the wool chain and the uh, cotton chain, but also the iron chain and the uh, chain of the wheat, how it becomes bread ultimately, and all the other consumer goods in uh, great demand. Uh, 
the, the deviation between the discount rates in these chains uh, cannot be uh, very great. In fact, it tends to be smaller and smaller. Why? Because these uh, chains of bill circulation uh, are not isolated chains or pipes, but they are interchangeable, so there is also a circulation of bills between the different chains and the effect is uh, equalizing the discount rate. So uh, a change in the discount rate, which can originate somewhere for some reason, will very quickly spread all over and will bring about a similar change in all the other chains of circulation. So the discount rate is actually a signaling system. And if you want to see the importance of this, then you have to think of the sovereign consumer. And ultimately a change in the discount rate uh, reflects a change in the propensity to consume if the discount rate is rising, it means propensity consume falls and vice versa. This relationship is definitely an inverted relationship. So any change in the discount rate uh, originates ultimately from the consumer. Now whether it's consuming food or consuming clothes or consuming something else, is, is uh, something we cannot say for sure. It can originate anywhere, but it will spread very quickly all, all over the trading system, and the adjustment in the, this country, it, if not instantaneous, at least it will be very quick in a matter of hours or days at most, the discount rate will uh, be adjusting the same way in all the other markets. So it's a signaling system. It sends the message to the marginal shopkeepers but also producers at various levels that the sovereign consumer has reined in his demand. This means a uh, uh, higher discount rate. And they, you should make, as a marginal shopkeeper or as a marginal producer, whatever, make an adjustment accordingly. And they will. Because if they don't, then they l lose the, their uh, profit uh, potential. And, and through this signaling system, uh, the uh, pro productive facilities of society and the distributing facilities of society will reach a very high level of efficiency, an ideally high level of efficiency, which without the discount rate and this instantaneous messaging, signaling, uh, it wouldn't be possible. 
And I already mentioned that there are lots of differences between the interest rate and this country. Uh, this is one of them. First of all, the discount rate should be pretty well constant and it is under the gold standard. Certainly uh, constant enough, sufficiently constant, to eliminate bond speculation. And if there are changes, they will be slow and minor. And that's quite uh, in contrast with the change in the discount rate. It changes independently, these two rates. One can move up, the other can move down, or vice versa. They could also move in the same direction. But uh, there is uh, almost complete independence between the movements because the sources uh, of the interest source of discount are quite different. In particular, I'm now examining you, what's the source of credit <coughs> in, uh, when it comes to saving? <laughs> it's the saving and the source is consumption um, in the bill market. The bond market, savings, bill market, consumption. And they both have their typical type of financing, typical type of credit, the bill in the case of consumption and the bond in the <coughs> case of uh, savings. So this is the, the full story now. We have examined a rather complex situation <coughs> where we uh, considered the consumption goods approaching the ultimate consumer and we and the marginal uh, productivity of social circulating capital which shows you uh, the uh, uh, possibility of expanding or contracting and also changing the composition very important on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a paper. This was physical goods, consumer goods. But there is a, a, a mirror image of that in the paper trading market, and that's these are the bills, the maturing bills, which uh, uh, circulate, change hands. They do a lot of useful work in financing uh, some production at the very last stage of the, the semi-finished good becoming a finished good and the consumer good ultimately when it is in the hands of the margin of the shopkeeper and uh, and uh, any change between any change in one will have a reflection in a change in the other both ways. So the physical market handling the consumer goods in the highest demand, which are moving very fast, consumer. On the other hand, the circulating bills and uh, changes may originate here or changes may originate there, but they will have an almost instantaneous repercussion in the mirror image in the other market. 
So uh, this is then the story. I may have some more to say about that tomorrow because there is a number, uh, there are four lectures devoted to this. One was yesterday, the real bills of Adam Smith. And then this morning we talked about social circulating capital and its marginal productivity. That was this morning. And now I'm talking about uh, the arbitrage between consumer goods and the market. Uh, consumer goods market on the one hand and bill market on the other. And there is a fourth and even a fifth topic here which uh, we can, uh, we, we will discuss tomorrow. Uh, a part of it I have already started, the formation of the discount rate and certainly the marginal shopkeeper, I have talked enough about that. But this goes into, this blossoms into the theory of retail trade. And, and that is coming uh, tomorrow. I just want to check with Peter that, uh, no, Rudy, right? Peter has done his job, okay? And uh, Rudy is still coming up. Uh, your topic is? The critique of the quantity theory of money and as how that pertains to the... And are you ready for tomorrow afternoon? Well, I thought I was doing it Thursday. Hmm? I, I thought I was doing it the day after. The day after. So I'll, I'll come up, I'll fill, I'll fill the gap tomorrow and assume that Rudy will. And that's just one, one lecture? Two lectures. Two lectures, okay. And then we are approaching the end, but we'll, we'll tie up the loose end. And uh, I hope it, you will uh, feel satisfied uh, when we come to the last lecture. Now I think uh, we could start a discussion now because I, I don't want to uh, go further here. So uh, what we have uh, discussed so far, uh, real bills, social circulating capital, marginal uh, item, marginal shopkeeper, discount rate, changes in discount rate, any of these the floor is open for discussion. Okay. Questions? Peter? Uh, perhaps I'm running ahead of Rudy's expose tomorrow. Um, perhaps you could also expand on why newly mined gold will, that hits the market will hit the bill market and drive down the discount rate instead of being inflationary. I think that would fit in nicely, unless really Yeah, this is coming. I, I plan to talk about that. But this is very important that why I, why I take so much time to explain the bill market, bill trading, consumer goods is precisely because I want to prove a rather general theorem that 
the quantity of gold in circulation is not going to change prices. If a lot of gold enters circulation, what will change is the discount rate. But I, I come to that. I come to that. So in other words, uh, gold is the best monetary commodity if you try to use some other commodity for that, that purpose, you will find that you run into difficulties. Uh, gold is an integral part of this circuit, circulation. Bills maturing into gold and then through the <coughs> labor market, gold is paid out in wages and then the consumer uh, buys the goods and there is a circulation rather similar to the circulation of water in, in uh, the ecology. Uh, that water uh, gets evaporated through the sunshine and uh, clouds are being formed and then there's precipitation rainfall and then water does its good job in agriculture and then the rivers collect it empty in the ocean and then cycle starts again. Something very similar is happening in the economy where gold plays the same role as water does in the ecology. So we, we come to that, but I do appreciate your question because it's very, very relevant to this discussion of ours. Um, but I don't want to start this new topic just now. Let's uh, see if there are questions about those things which we have already discussed. Yes. Well, Professor, could you review uh, the very origin of the discount rate? Why is there such a thing at all before it gets you know, into this complex arrangement? Just the historic origin of the discount rate. Gold standard? The, the historic origin of the discount rate. Oh, historic origin. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, originally, bills arose because of a very common situation having to do with moving value over space. And I, I could say that the bill market is a reflection on move, moving value in, over space, whereas the bond market is more like moving value over time. So uh, you have to imagine two countries probably separated by big water, okay? And there are merchants and producers in each, and the surplus in one country is uh, in high demand in the other and vice versa. So there is a very useful exchange of goods. But it never ever happens that the uh, same value is shipped in one direction, exactly the same in the other, so they cancel out. Usually there are differences and these differences have to be, uh, have to be uh, 
settled in cash, which means in gold. Now, the way this happens is that there are banks also, or quasi-banks, certainly the people who uh, accept papers, uh, because the, the merchants uh, do trust one another in this country and in the other. They know that they act in good faith and nobody tries to be outsmarting the other of uh, defraud him of his well-earned returns. And uh, therefore, when goods move, paper moves in the opposite direction. This uh, short dated bill, 90 day bill. And then those who have payments to make in one country couldn't do better than just uh, uh, using that paper for that purpose of payment because the uh, exporter in this country gets bills and the same here and uh, when time comes to pay well you try to send the paper back which is much cheaper than sending uh, another consignment of goods which uh, uh, with which you would take your chances whether it has a ready market or not so in other words uh, paying for imports is the main source of demand for bills. Because if you are in an importer, say, in this country, and time has come for you to pay, then you could buy the bills circulating here of merchants in the other country, you buy that and send it back. And only in case there is a deficit, a, a definite deficit in one, in the trade accounts of one country, when gold has to be shipped. But the history is that this really was a very rare occasion when gold had to be shipped in payment for goods, which are consumer goods in high demand. This is, this is a fact. You can go back and study the records of the Bank of England and see why it was that the Bank of England could finance world trade globally in the 19th century and early 20th century on a very, very tiny gold reserve. It's really surprising. Even even Keynesians uh, find it a miracle that so little gold was needed to run the world trade, which is a fact. You can go to the records, it's in the public domain, and check. And, uh, and uh, today it would be even smaller amount of gold relative to the volume of trade because we have 
very much more sophisticated telecommunication system. Instantaneous transfer of cash is possible, which wasn't, because much of the 19th century had to do without uh, telegraph and uh, wireless uh, radio communication and the rest of it. But today, even money can be sent instantaneously from one corner of the globe uh, to another. So it is this um, uh, need of paying bills in a foreign country which gave rise to uh, and an lent importance to the bill market. Uh, trying to eliminate shipping gold from one place to another. And now the discount rate is, is a necessary part of the adjustment mechanism because uh, it keeps the demand always at a very high level, demand for bills, and the supply of bills is always there. And if there is any need for adjustment, the discount rate takes, uh, takes uh, care of that. So uh, this is what I would say uh, uh, in explanation of the evolution of the bill market. It might have started out as a local affair, uh, as we have seen it in the wool chain and the cotton chain, spinner, uh, weaver, and cloth merchant, which is a, strictly a local affair in the same area. These people actually know each other in person and they are friends, they meet frequently over a glass of beer, they discuss their common problems and how to improve their trading system. But very soon it became global. And the bill market covered the whole entire globe. And that was possible because of the qualities of gold, gold payments. It's completely unmatched, unrivaled, no other financing matches gold financing, but the beauty of it is that gold either doesn't have to move physically at all, or if it has to, it's just a very minimal amount which takes care of the various imbalances. Uh, now, we have a discussion period coming up, or the question is, would you rather have it now and then uh, we call it a day? Or would you rather have your half hour coffee break now and come back for the discussion afterwards? Well, let's keep going. <laughs> keep going? Keep going. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Hmm? Keep going. So then we finish early today and if you want to go sightseeing or something, uh, today is the day. Unless the, the rain or the storm comes, which uh, will not be helpful. Yes? That's a wonderful story about uh, how the uh, bills became used globally. Isn't it? it, it it's, really, it's, it's really one of the n very nice stories in economics. The dry subject 
but you can visualize it as a drama, as if it was played on a, on a, in a theater. Yeah. I, I, but I still don't get um, how the discount rate operated in that. How? Because Rudy's question to you was about the history of the discount rate. Uh, about the about the history of the discount no, his, rate. Well, how history. it arose in the first uh -huh. instance, the discount rate. Uh -huh. the discount okay. rate. Okay. So in that context, how did? All right. I, uh, you are right. I I haven't. Uh, hit on that. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, how the this country appeared and how uh, the uh, changes of this country became important and necessary. The, the historical aspect. So uh, Let's start with the uh, chain of wool trading with the wool merchant and the spinner, the weaver, the cloth merchant. Uh, it goes smoothly enough as far as that is concerned until some extraordinary event takes place. And uh, this extraordinary event could be that the weaver has a loom and this loom breaks down and it's beyond repair. And he has to have a new loom in a hurry. That's everybody's interest because if one link in the chain is broken, then the chain is pretty useless, isn't it? You've got to fix that broken link. So uh, all the other traders in the same chain will agree with the uh, weaver that it's absolutely necessary to have the new loom available as soon as possible so they can keep producing. Any, uh, delay will uh, punish every other merchant in the same chain. So let's assume that the the weaver has a pile of of bills, maturing bills, and he wants to raise the cash to go to the loom maker to pay for a new loom should be delivered immediately, uh, installed, and then the production can start again. So he goes to uh, the spinner, offers his bill, goes to the uh, uh, cloth uh, merchant, and they all say, well, I would really love to I'll help you and, uh, and take the bills off your hands and give you the gold coins which you will then have to take to the loom maker to buy the new loom. But uh, unfortunately I haven't got the gold coins. So they couldn't help him. So at, at that point the uh, weaver is pretty desperate but what else can he do? He will go to the loom maker next town 
and takes a chance. Perhaps the loom maker will uh, take take the bills. He doesn't know for sure, but what can he lose? He will try. And uh, as it turns out, the loom maker might just uh, like the idea because he might have the gold coins which he is uh, storing because he has a new extension to his factory say but uh, his, his, his bill is not due yet it will be due in a month's time so in the meantime he doesn't mind to carry maturing bills which means an, a little additional income for him and then he, the trade is made. He provides the loom to the weaver who can start weaving right away and then he will in due course uh, make the payment and perhaps even the stonemason will accept the bills if they haven't matured in the meantime in payment for the work he has done on the loom factory. So you see, the, this is what's behind the very high liquidity of these. But now we have to visualize the situation that, that uh, these bills have so much time to run to maturity. So everybody agrees there has to be a discount. You, you, nobody will pay face value because they haven't matured yet. So everybody knows that uh, there will be a discount. But just how much this discount should be? That's the question. And if we answer that question, then we answer Rudy's question and Louis' question, because that's exactly the point which we have to now decide. What determines the actual discount rate at which the loom maker's bill in his portfolio, which, is, which he was going to collect, later, but now he needs immediate cash to buy the loom. So there are willing people. Uh, the only thing is that uh, they have to agree on a mutually acceptable discount rate. So what is going to determine that discount rate? Well, my approach to this is that the uh, discount rate which they will find mutually acceptable uh, the weaver and the loom maker or whoever else is willing to give him the gold coins now for a bill which is not going to mature for another month or two it depends on the propensity to consume you see? Because if the propensity to consume happens to be low, then the uh, 
fellow who is willing to take this would say, well, my risk is really greater. In a, in a brisk market, when the propensity of consume is high, propensity to consume is high, there is little risk in taking your paper because you know that the next consumer is coming along and taking your merchandise and you have the cash flow to meet uh, your payments. But if the uh, propensity to consume is, uh, is low, then the risk is, could be much higher. And therefore you say, well, I have to cover my risk. I take the paper because I like the idea of collecting the, this contract, but it will have to be higher, I'm sorry to say, because I am running a greater risk. And it's not your fault, it's not my fault, it's the sovereign consumer, the crown on the wall, sovereign consumer. So this is the only basis for consensus. If, if all these participants in the bill market want to come up with a consensual rate, then it has to be governed by the sovereign consumer, the propensity to consume. And, and that is, is in full harmony with, with everything I have said earlier. That, uh, the propensity to consume and the marginal productivity of uh, social certain capital are in the inverse relationship. So that's the answer I can give to your question. I actually, when you expressed your admiration for the story, and I expect I expressed my own. Uh, inner satisfaction with having a little hand to, in developing that story, I, uh, I put this down in a form of a story and actually I gave the title The Second Greatest Story Ever Told. It's the second because the greatest story is of course the Bible. But uh, let's be modest. The second <laughs> <laughs> and this is on the internet and you can find it uh, I can't give you verse and chapter but it's not difficult to find it I have a website and I go to popular economics and I uh, when I wrote it it was made part of uh, one of these courses which I uh, did not give in live like this one about the course which was there's a DVD about the course. That you That's on DVD? Oh, good. Well, can you give reference? It's the third, uh, third of, of the DVD. Uh -huh. So, in that second greatest story ever told, there was a movie, second, uh, the greatest story ever told. So I just borrowed the title of that movie, making it the second greatest story. And I would welcome anybody who would like to make an actual but movie. Perhaps, perhaps, uh, the time, please. Adam Smith. Uh, oh, they will find it. I'm sure if you're interested, you will. It's not, not difficult to find. But they, are, they cannot see what it is until they 
So in 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 the second greatest story ever told, I uh, write as if it, as if as it were uh, what's the name for the script for a movie? Uh, scenario. Scenario. Script. Movie. It's script. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I visualize, uh, I think it's in terms of the cotton chain. There is the cotton merchant and then the, the uh, spinner and the weaver. And what, what did you have in the miller and the, and the baker and the... Yeah. And uh, the, yes, the, the loom breaks down, that's all there, and then he offers his bills, everybody wants to help, uh, but ultimately has to go to the next town. And then there is a similar story for, for the wheat train, the uh, uh, miller and the baker. And uh, uh, so I, I think you will like it, it's, uh, it's written, uh, for its entertainment value as much as its uh, theoretical value. And actually it goes on to cover the discount house, which I talked about this morning, and the acceptance house, and how the conspiracy uh, failed, the conspiracy between the uh, miller and the baker, who withheld the wheat in their storage facilities because they were speculating on a higher uh, wheat price due to the weather, uh, inclement weather resulting in... It's God saying, he wrote the best story. <laughs> So I do recommend that, uh, I, I don't think I can promise to print it out and distribute it. But there's no problem because it's on the internet and you don't even have to carry the paper when you go home, just find it. Uh, we, we can give the exact reference tomorrow to this. And, uh, and I think this is the best explanation I can give you uh, for the fact that the height of the discountry is determined by the propensity to consume. Because that is the guiding principle for the uh, various traders who might uh, who might buy your bill before it matures. They, this is what they think of. How my cash flow is going to work? What risk am I taking if I uh, buy this particular bill? So that's how it works. And that's the best answer I can give you.
That's a very good answer. Yes. It's a very good answer. It makes a lot of sense. I'm sure if you read, read the second greatest story ever told, you will like it. And, and you will understand all the... You, ha you haven't read it? No, I haven't. Oh, wow! <laughs> you have some, something <laughs> coming it to you. It is not eaten. Hmm? It is not eaten, I think. It's, it is really it's, really it's not written, I think. It is on the DVD. No, it's written. I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's on the internet. That's my memory. That's my memory. Uh, you have the, the DVD? You, you did. You. It, it is on, the, on your web page. It can be ordered on your web page. It's not available yet? Hmm? Yes, it is. It is available. It's already available. We, we have copies of that? I'm not sure. No. Well, this. anyhow, you, if, if you want the DVD that's available uh, from Marta Schoon, you, does everybody have her? I have a DVD, I'll watch it. Okay. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> now, just as well that we have an early finish because <laughs> we don't know what, <laughs> what risk we are taking if we continue. <laughs> Further questions? Short add-on question perhaps to this, and I think you touched this already. So the alternative uh, gold standard where this real deal market is not as sophisticated, what are the problems that arise and what are the problems that did arise historically actually, the main problems? What are the problems if there is no real bills market? Okay. In this what, what problems will arise, Professor, if you Is have... Is this the 100% gold standard? Well, I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. basically. Yeah, well, uh, they call it the so-called 100% gold standard. But that's a complete misnomer. And uh, the, uh, the greatest advocate of the so-called 100% gold standard was Murray Rothbard, who is dead now. Uh, he was a very colorful figure, and uh, I, know, I knew him in person and I liked him, but I think he went completely wrong on, on that idea. He was a great advocate of return to gold standard, but he said it had to be 100% in the sense that the banks had to carry 100% gold reserve, no other asset. But, you know, if you have to run a banking system, the banks will have to need, have to have some kind of income. I mean, nobody will run a bank on charity for you, and if they did, that I would trust that. <laughs> so uh, that was never clear to me what, and actually Mises said much the same, but in different words. And Mises was more careful. Murray uh, Rothbard, when the spirit took him, he would just make outrageous statement and. Uh, uh, would leave it uh, there, but Mises was much more careful. But basically, he also said the same thing: that a bank 
must carry 100% gold reserve and it should cover its own expenses by charging fees for very, uh, various services. Every little uh, service would be subject to a fee. So each check would have to uh, have a, uh, a charge made to the account holder or uh, if uh, you took the elevator from the first to the second floor, you would have to put in a coin and, and that's the way you want, he wanted to run the bank. Uh, I, I, uh, I didn't think it was very practical to run a bank like that. The bank should have some assets which are earning assets, but obviously have to be the safest type of assets, so it's your job of finding what these safest uh, assets uh, are. But Mises uh, said all assets are basically the same. He did not believe in the bill market, as I explained it earlier, and therefore he he thought that bills are subject to the same kind of uh, fluctuation as bonds are. Uh, so uh, there it is, 100% gold standard. Now, a 100% gold standard would not fly. Uh, we might as well agree on that right here and now. And they, it would not fly because of the very great uh, flexibility that is needed in trade. Trade is definitely seasonal and it's not just the Christmas shopping and the, uh, and the uh, dry season in January after Christmas when uh, trade volume contracts. There are all kinds of other very important fluctuations.